take your Bible, if you would, and turn to the book of 1 Timothy this morning. Uh, it's great, again, to be together. Uh, really appreciate our worship team being able to lead us in our worship of our Lord and Savior. I remember uh, a number of years ago uh, singing that song, knowing all that was transpiring in the course of my life in ministry, having been at a church in uh, the Minnesota area for a number of years and God leading to the conclusion that he was, he was moving us from a ministry there. And I remember the last Sunday of being at, this, at the service and they sang that song uh, the last Sunday that I was there. And I remember moving and thinking, I'm taking my family uh, at a place where none of our family is and, and we're moving uh, states away and we're moving from the north to the south and all kinds of worry and uh, anxiety going on in my own soul. And then coming to church that morning, singing that song and just relinquishing whatever burden of anxiety and, and, and the necessity to trust the Lord and just to be able to say to him through that song. And every time I sing that song, I remember where I was and where I was standing just saying, Lord, it doesn't matter where I am, where I go, I have you. And whatever transpires and what you want me, uh, what you call my life to become and for the lives of my children and family, and that is true, not only for me, but I hope it is true for you. When you sing that song, that you remember those truths, all you need is him. There's so much in this world that is vying for your attention. So much in this world that is, is trying to grab you and pull you away from conformity to Jesus Christ. And certainly now, as we look at the book of 1 Timothy... Uh, we see false teachers, even in the midst of the, uh, having come out of the situation of elders in the Ephesian church, and now Paul uh, extends his conversation to Timothy to help them understand how are we going to respond to these people in this place at this time. Before we get to the word, let's bow together in prayer and ask the Lord to, to help us uh, as, we, as we look into this text of scripture together. Father in heaven, we, we come before you very much humbled in your presence, recognizing that who we are and what we live for and what we have in Christ and the grace that has been so freely given to us, Lord, it comes from you, from a benevolent Father in heaven who looked upon the needs of the world and would not sit idly by, disconnected, he wouldn't do that, but the son was willing to come. He was willing to sacrifice himself for each one of us so that we could be saved. Lord, I pray that as we get into this text of scripture today and we talk about what you have revealed in your word, that it would challenge us to reshape our minds and our hearts and our practices to those which are holy in your sight. Lord, we live in the midst of a culture that is filled with, with all kinds of unholy practices, much of which we, as we persevere through this life, Lord, we, we need you every single moment of every day. Lord, help us to learn your word this morning together and to put it into practice. In your name we pray, amen. 1 Timothy chapter 1, we began 
about two weeks ago, getting into the first portions uh, of, of the text of 1 Timothy, and we recognize, let's bring our minds back up to speed about the dilemma that, that Timothy was facing in the midst of the Ephesian church. We recognize that there were teachers, there were, there were those in the midst of the law that, that understood what was going on, that were now leading people to a, a gospel that was other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this morning, what we want to talk about in Paul's discussion is that how he corrected the false teachers in their teaching because he gives us a discourse about the law and the lawless. Because there was something going on in the life of the Ephesian church and these false teachers that were taking truth and they were reshaping it to something that the end product was a different kind of gospel. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I don't have those up at the uh, booth. Just go ahead and change my slides for me this morning. That would be great. But 1 Timothy chapter 1, remind yourself of this. 1 Timothy 1, 3, he says this. I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach my, a, a different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now notice something when you read this early part and we connect these two these two sections where Paul is, is in the discourse against these false teachers. There was something, while we may not be able to nail down exactly what kind of false teaching to every single nuance was going on, we do know this, and you can pick up on it. Desiring to be teachers of the law. There was something about the false teaching that was going on in Ephesus that was a reshaping and an altering of what the law actually was. Many commentators will debate on what extent of that law is he talking about. Is it the ceremonial law? Is it the moral law? Is it, is, it the, is it the combination of the two? And I think what's going on here is every time you get a, a phrase where it describes the teachers of the law, it is shaping us back to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, that for the Old Testament individual and the New Testament individual, they understood something that our Christianity was built off of what was going on in the early parts of Genesis. God was revealing himself, and these teachers were taking that law, all those teachings of the Pentateuch, and they were twisting them, and they were reshaping them. And you notice his phrase as he leads into this next section. He says, they don't know, uh, they desire to be teachers, but with it, without an understanding, either with what they are saying or the things about which they make such confidence assertions. Now, have you ever been in a point where you were sincerely and enthusiastically wrong? Don't you love those moments? You're having a debate, an argument, or some sort, 
and you don't seem to have all your facts straight, and yet the zeal is all there. You are, you are pumped, you are, you are energized, you are saying, no, this is the way it is, and this is how you do it, and then you come to add some other understanding, and you realize you've been enthusiastically filled with zealous, but completely wrong. I hate those moments, because I hate to be wrong. But when you get the truth wrong, there's larger ramifications to people's lives in the world when something as clear and as significant as the gospel becomes twisted. And when Paul writes to Timothy, part of his declaration and command to Timothy that we had covered where he would say, Timothy, get down there. These people are are teaching a gospel that will send people to hell. They don't know what they're saying. They have no idea what they're doing and where these people will ultimately end up going. But they're doing all of this enthusiastically, believing that they're leading people to a right truth in the gospel. I wish I could say that we don't have to engage in various perspectives in our world and various ministries to realize that we often are put in similar circumstances where there are people who, who, who alter the truth This has been true ever since the early ages. In the early church fathers in the third, late fourth century, an early church father in the Eastern church by the name of of Chrysostom, he says concerning this passage, he says, says, Paul censors the opponents because they they, they know not the end and the aim of the law, nor the period for which it has, has, has been given a level of authority. Chrysostom continues and he says, by discussing practical ways the law is used lawfully and concludes this, that the righteous person keeps the law through desire and not fear of punishment led by the grace of the spirit of God. Now what is he getting at? Chrysostom as an early church father had to to debate and, and, and be criticized in so many ways. In fact, labeled his name means golden mouth. That's the name that I want. Now, why was he there? Reality is, in the third and fourth century, there was so much catastrophe going on in the church and so much misplaced uh, portions and priorities in people's lives, and people who were wealthy could care less about the rich. And Chrysostom says over and over again, How can you be a good Christian and yet not live by the gospel of Jesus that has you love God and love people? Chrysostom emphatically would state over and over again and here, tries to reshape and help an understanding as he studied the book of 1 Timothy by saying, listen, they didn't, these false teachers didn't understand the law. They didn't realize that when the Old Testament individual fulfilled the, 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 the law themselves by doing all of the ceremonial law, it was supposed to come out of a heart that was genuine. The law in and of itself never saved people. So in your own mind, as you read the Old Testament, don't think to yourself for one minute that somehow it's works in the Old Testament and grace in the new. It's always been grace. It's always been grace from the moment that Jesus, that that, that God in in his ultimate eternal plan rescued, had to rescue us from sin entering into the world by Adam and Eve. 
It's always been grace. And whatever works and things that he called the Christian to do or the believer in the Old Testament to do, he called them to do out of a genuine heart. In our section this morning, it's, it's Paul's call to Timothy, and he says to him, the aim of what I'm about to say is love. Now, the reason why this is so important to preempt this reality, that the aim of Paul's instruction to Timothy and Timothy's instruction to the elders is love, because you're about to go through a litany, a litany of unholy kinds of practices that the law condemns. And it wasn't just false teach. It was the, wasn't just the fact that the false teachers were leading this way, but they were saying they were disrupting the way that the law was perceived. And so he continues in verse number eight. Follow with me. He says, "Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless." And disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. That's some heavy stuff. When he is reshaping and helping them understand the reality of the law, remember the aim, the telos, the end goal of this was love. And I just say to you that we are called to speak the truth in love to a culture who's practicing all kinds of unholy practices but they're not just practicing unholy, doing unholy things. They're doing unholy things because their heart is far from God. Their heart is viewing that they don't need salvation, that somehow they don't need the gospel, and that these choices, these practices that would arise either in Ephesus or in our present day, that these are actions against the eyes of a sovereign, holy, and just God who is, who is who has drawn out the boundaries and parameters of the Christian life for our good. And when we think about this charge being love, we need to be people who not only can stand with zeal and strength and confidence and clarity in the truth of the gospel, but we must be driven by people of love, by, a, by being people who are filled with that kind of love. Do you notice this, that all of a sudden, when you have love and people know that you love them, do you recognize this really incredible thing that happens? They often let you speak into their lives in ways that they don't let other people speak into their lives. See, the reality is, is that Jesus was willing to come and love those who were unlovely. Those who at times were not willing to hear what they needed to hear. And yet Jesus in his compassion and love was willing to share it. He stood dogmatically on the truth of the gospel. And yet he stood there with a disposition of love because knowing that without sharing the truth, without demonstrating love, 
where would they end up? They would end up in eternity separated from God. And it is his desire as we look at this to be filled with people, to be people of love, to recognize this. Now follow his arguments. Here's number one on your, on your outline in the back of your bulletin when we talk about the law. You notice as he is, he is teaching and writing to Timothy, who then Timothy would take what he's saying and bringing it back to the church in Ephesus and to the elders. He says this, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Well, the reality was in the false teachers, they could agree, Paul, Timothy, and godly elders of Ephesus, and the false teachers could agree on one thing. We ought to use the law. In fact, we believe something about the law. They believe something, we believe something. But here's the reality, Paul says. One of us is wrong. And we live in such a tolerant culture anymore. Even saying to someone anymore, do you realize this? You say, that's not right. That's wrong. God says that this is not right. Do you realize that just even saying and speaking those words in certain contexts of people, they respond internally and sometimes outwardly like, how dare you say that my truth is not accurate. It's like, who would, who would have really recognized that in our day, to say that something was right and something was wrong was fighting words? I thought, I thought at some particular point, we realized there is something right, there is something wrong. But the moment you, you don't have an understanding between what is right and what is wrong, you misplace an understanding of the gospel because the gospel is for people who have done something wrong. So you can't come to church and you can't read your Bible and leave yourself at like this good, ooey gooey kind of feeling like Jesus is just love. No, Jesus gave us the law. Jesus wanted to allow the law to bring a heaviness on our soul so that we would recognize our need for grace. But in our culture, so often we are coming to a conclusion now where just saying that there is only one truth, there is only one authority, and the Bible is it, is fighting words for people but not amongst Christians. It should never be said of Christians or those who embrace the gospel, which is why Paul is so animated to tell Timothy, get down there. How dare they say that they can treat the law any which way they want because the law, even though we both agree that we have to address what the law is, but they're taking it and they're misusing it. Well, the law is... God's design of revealing of who he is. Isn't this interesting when we think about what makes the law good? Well, there's two things that really make the law good. One, the law is an accurate reflection of the very will of God. So when God lists out and just think about the Ten Commandments for a moment that encapsulates and embodies a whole bunch of the other Levitical laws, so don't go through and think, okay, we just got ten. No, you've got hundreds of them that are embodied within the Ten Commandments. 
But all of those commandments of the law were intended to accurately reflect the very will of God. So that when God would get to commandment number one, there shall be no other God before me. That there was something right and there was something wrong. And it was very clearly delineated between the two. If you were serving a pagan idol, if you were in Ephesus and going to the goddess of Diana and you were bowing down and you were committing sexually immoral acts, he would say, this is a violation of the very clear command of the law not to have other gods before me. Paul's design is to help them realize that the law is really good. It accurately reflects the very will of God. So you never walk away, and I never walk away wondering this. I wonder what God does really appreciate. You realize you can read the Bible, and you can be right with God, and you can know that you're right with God. You don't have to live a life where you wonder, am I right with God? If you are saved and have repented of your sin, and you've trusted in Jesus Christ, and you are looking to follow his clear teachings on how to live your life, you can know that you are right with God. Why? Because obedience to the word of God accurately reflects what God's will is for your life. This is why it's very difficult for any person to, say, to, answer, to ask this question, I wonder what God's will is for my life, and then never go to the Bible to try to allow it to help you figure out what's going on with your life. So many young people will ask the question, what is God's will? My question first is, how much are you searching his word and do you know the truth? Because wherever you go and whatever you do will be consistent with whatever he says his will is. He's given us, I love Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God and the revealed things belong to us and to our children forever. Here's the thing. There are things that God has no obligation to tell you about. That's the secret things. Someday, maybe you'll know some and maybe you won't. But what is real important is, it's the revealed things. Because the revealed things reveal a real person who had a real authority and has real truth. And the law is good primarily because it reveals a very good God who has given very good commands and very good boundaries for us to live by so that we could know the truth Apart from him giving us the scripture and giving us revelation, we cannot know God. I don't know about you. When I recognize the circumstance of my own soul, that I couldn't save me, I needed someone outside of me. And the scriptures reveal that this person, this person who created all the things that you and I appreciate and enjoy, this person who is willing to love and love people who were unlovely and sinners, he came because he wanted to give us the truth so that we could be saved. This law was incredibly important. The Pentateuch reveals that, but it only doesn't, doesn't just reveal the will of God, but it also it also accurately reflects a few other things as well. 
When we think about the will of God, what what is it doing? In Romans chapter three, verse 20, notice this. For by the works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, why is the law so good? Because the law tells you something about you that God already knows about you. The problem is, is that unbelievers don't want to agree with God's assessment of who they are. The law reveals most pointedly, can you keep this? So many different occasions over the, over the years of ministry, having witnessed and using various components of the law, knowing that to enter into heaven, one must be perfectly perfect in righteousness, knowing and people say, and you'll often ask them, in fact, I, I, would, I would go to bet that if you asked most people who were unbelievers and you ran across them and you asked them the one question, do you think you're a good person? Almost nine times out of 10, you would hear, well, yeah, I've never killed anybody. And yet to hate someone is to commit murder in your heart, to lust after someone is to commit adultery in your heart. I don't know anybody in this world who, has never, who, who hasn't just lived by just the 10 commandments righteously. And God righteously could, just, could justly send us all to hell. And yet he gives us grace instead. Have you ever wondered to yourself, why would he do that? Because the aim of his charge of the gospel was love. So that we could know the God who loves on a completely different plane than we love. So that he could help us understand there are boundaries that he sets up because a loving father creates boundaries and in the Old Testament, the law were the boundaries to help them accurately understand the very will of God. But secondly, to understand this, that, there was an, that it accurately reflects the moral character of God. It reveals God's will, but it reveals God's morality. See, what that tells us is that morality in and of itself in the culture is not just sociological. We don't just do what we do because over time culture shifts and then new sets of moral values are then now right today that were wrong 20 20 to 30 years ago. The world would love to get people to believe that morality is culturally based. That somehow all those people who have lived from generations to generations, that they were kind of stupid, and since we've now gravitated to a more intellectual plane, that we somehow have a better vantage point to understand what is moral. And when I say what is moral, I mean what is right from what is wrong. We don't get to determine that. God gave the law so that we could explicitly say, God says this. And then we could abide by that law. It accurately reflects the very moral character of God. And you know what that tells us? Is that as a holy being, one untainted from sin, one who has no sin at all, who is completely separate and outside, which is the idea of holiness, that when we go to the word of God, you know what, sometimes Christians get 
get in a point in their life where they think, oh, I'm just not going to give time to reading the Bible and being in devotions and hearing the word preached and going to these venues or to these circumstances where you're in the text of the scripture. What's at stake here if we don't value the law? And in this sense, value the larger, con- the, the, the larger perspective of inspired truth. You know what's at stake? Is when we don't read the Bible, we don't get to know God. We don't know how much he loves us, how much he cared for us, where his boundaries are, why he would do these things. What's at stake is a relationship with a God who wanted to reveal himself through the pages of scripture so that we could say, God says this. I can't tell you how many times as a parent, I am so thankful that I am not the end authority. My, my kids don't like it when all of a sudden I say, I don't want you to do that. And they say, can you tell me why? And I say, well, because I said so. What do you think about that? I don't answer to you. Believers and unbelievers will answer to a higher authority. These false teachers believing that they could alter and mix and divert people away and change the gospel will stand accountable to a higher authority of a moral individual who will judge based upon his standards alone. And he will measure it based upon his holy character and his holy word. This is why when we think about the law being good, it does something good for us. It reveals something about us that God knew about us, but we didn't know about us. It reflects who we are outside of Christ. It reflects that we desperately need Jesus Christ. Without it, without grace, without, without the law that would point so heavily on the reality that we are sinners in need of grace. What brings up another question then? If we know that the law is good, according to Paul's argument to Timothy... He says, the law is good. Well, how do we know it's good? Well, you have to use it lawfully. If you begin to use the word that God intended to be used in an, in an, un, in an unbiblical way, you're using it unlawfully. Now think of what's going on about in these false teachers. You read the larger context of the whole of 1 Timothy and they're people who are interested in being elevated as teachers and having the prized position and having money as a result of their position. He's saying, you're not even using the law. You're using the law for selfish gain instead of glorification of God's moral character and leading people to God's moral standards. You're not using it lawfully. In fact, this word lawfully is used one other time in the book of of 2 Timothy where he uses it in 2 Timothy 2, 5, and he, and he uses it in this context. He says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. What he's saying is this word, to use it lawfully, is to say you must use the Bible the way God intended the Bible to be used, otherwise you end up with a different gospel. When you don't play by God's rules, you're gonna end up in a very bad predicament. And the last thing that Timothy or Paul or any genuine elder desired were for people to be led astray from the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I want to think about it in this regard as well. We talk about the law, and the law in the Old Testament was the inspired revelation of God. It's what they had at the moment. Over time, and even since then, we have had an increase of the progress of revelation. Therefore, the way that they looked at the law as the embodiment of God's revealed moral character and the revealing of God's will is true not only in the law, but is in all of the inspired scripture to the degree to which the content of the inspired truth is authoritative and sufficient for you and I to live out our lives with godliness. He's, he's, not, he's left nothing out for you and I. He's not trying to divert our attention away. What he's trying to do is help us realize the value of truth. But most, of, most often, the most pointed deception comes not outside of the truth, but twisting the truth. See, it wouldn't just be enough. They couldn't just hijack Christianity, these false teachers, could not just hijack people to a different gospel. It's not like they put up their sign in the, in the, in the church on Sunday that said, hey, if you're looking for a different gospel, come and sit over here. It's not that easy. It wasn't that, it wasn't, it was more deceptive than that. The most deceptive false teaching uses the Bible instead of not using the Bible. This is exactly how Satan used the Bible when, when he tempted Jesus. He took the truth, he took it out of context, and used it for a purpose and a motive other than purity and holiness, and it divert, it, he was trying to get Jesus to divert away from the calling that he had come to save people. There are so many different kinds of false teachings. This week, as I was studying for this, I, I ordered a book that I found on Ligonier Ministries called A Field Guide to False Teaching. I think, you know what? We need to be aware of the kind of false teaching. And if you're not, what a good book to be able to, to, to help your mind realize there's all kinds of opposing truths that live out there that people are trying to say, but, but the Bible says this and God is a God of love, and he would never send anybody to hell. Could you imagine the moment that someone believed that truth and died, and how shocked they would be all of a sudden when, the, when Jesus would say, depart from me, for I never knew you? See, love tells people the truth. I think the one mainline false teaching that often occurs and it has hit so many people is the health and wealth gospel. I remember growing up seeing all kinds of health and wealth preachers, televangelists and all sorts saying, put your hand on the screen and then send in your $10. And I remember thinking to myself, who would do that? But I'll tell you what, they get people to do it. And the prosperity gospel that it's embodied in the reality that all of a sudden that God wants you to attain some physical, material, financial prosperity in this life and that if you just believe it, then you'll have all the things that God wants you to have. And you think about how, how in opposition that is to the reality of suffering. And yet they catch people saying that some level there's a present day inheritance that you can have it, you can name it and claim it, you can, you can give to get. If you give more to us, then, we, then you will get more from God. 
If you ever hear me say that, you should run. Because giving is not about getting. It's not saying, God, okay, you know what, I'm going to give to you, and then you'll give back to me. And yet so many people have been caught in these kinds of false teaching that somehow they can name it and say, you know what, just say to that disease, be gone. And your faith in Christ should just make it disappear. But what if suffering is the way in which God chooses to pull us to himself? What if all of a sudden my suffering is the way that he's trying to strengthen my faith, not destroy my faith, or not to reveal that I haven't had enough faith? Oh, countless times that I've been in a counseling room with, with disabled people who have been told from this kind of vantage point that the reason you're not healed and are still in a wheelchair is because you just don't have enough faith. Wickedness is what that is. Jesus loved people of all kinds, of all ethnicities, in all circumstances, and yet some of the most the most delightful people that I have met in my life have been people who have suffered greatly in a, in a variety of ways and, dis, and some of them were disabled and yet they keep the most contented countenance I've ever seen. How is that? Because the gospel of grace allows us to see something through a false teaching like this. So many people are caught with it. And yet the law is good to bring us to an understanding of ourself so that we can then have an understanding of where we stand with God. The law was designed so that we would not embrace a way of false teaching so that it could, we could see that God is good. If you want a little assignment on your own in your own devotions, just look in the book as you read in 1 Timothy. Circle every time he calls something good. The law that's good. There's a good standing with the deacons because of the way they respond. Creation is good. There's a good doctrine. There's a, he, Paul wanted Timothy to be a good servant and he fight the good faith and the, make the good confession. There's some thematic component that Paul is building into 1 Timothy to say, you wanna know what's good? The law's good. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's good and it's, I'm gonna tell you about all these good things. Christian, the Bible is filled with God's good Laws, God's good moral standards that we must live by. Well, how does it work? Well, Galatians 3 says this. Galatians 3 says, so then, in verse 24 and 25, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. What that means is these false teachers didn't understand the extent of when the law's authority stopped and, and the authority in faith in Christ and the gospel started. They didn't realize that the law was meant to guide you to your, your need of him. What it ought to tell us is when you see your own life, the law was there to help you realize that you're a lawbreaker. Lawbreakers can find mercy and grace from the Son, Jesus Christ. But you'll never go there if you don't believe you're a sinner. 
I don't, you know, Jesus, you know, Jesus had to come and help people understand that the law was good and that it was there to reveal that you're a sinner and you need me, Jesus was saying. That's what he was saying. You need me. You've got to give this up and you've got to embrace me. And yet so many wouldn't want to do it. And yet it was not a problem with the law. It was not the content of the law. It was the way the law was being used. But the law in and of itself is good when it is used lawfully to reveal sin. And now that we are not under the law, we are under grace. That doesn't mean that the moral aspects of the law, of what God's revealed character and God's revealed will, are somehow now obsolete. God is still holy. God is still just. God is still has moral standards. You see it all throughout the Bible. And yet those standards now, through Christ, also bring a heaviness to my own soul. Because I know I need him that bad. Well, who was the law used for then? It was not for the just. I mean, he, he says in this argumentation, it's not for the just, but it's for the unjust. Isn't this the very comment that Jesus made in the Gospels? Those who aren't sick don't need someone don't need a physician. But those who are sick need a physician. That's what the law was intended to do, reveal our predicament so that we would run to the great physician and he could heal our spiritual predicament. Well, what is that spiritual predicament? You know what it is? The Bible plainly puts it in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We, as people who have been made in his image, born with sin, have missed the mark of God's standard of holiness. The law reveals and accentuates the heaviness of that unholy predicament, of which there's only one answer for in the truth of God's word. And it's embodied in this statement, the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, who saves the one who would give grace, the one who would give mercy. It's not for the just because they don't, they don't need to have that placed on them, but it's for the unjust. In fact, notice how the law and the truth of the inspired word still informs the conscience. The more that you understand the Bible, the more it convicts you. It either condemns you or commends you. Remember we said that last time. It condemns you or commends you, which means the more you're in God's word, the more the spirit of God uses the word of God on the conscience that God has put on your heart to help you realize a consistent need for God every day. There's not one single day you will live here on earth that you could ever say to yourself, I don't need him today. Oh, Christian, we need him desperately. It's for the unjust It's for those who practice lawlessness because those who practice lawlessness don't even realize or even want to call it lawlessness. You realize, I mean, it's hard for us to understand that, you know, you you watch the news and it's like somebody is now calling what used to be called wrong, they're now calling it right. It's like a moral upheaval that has turned every moral understanding on its head and saying, well, no, no, that's what we used to think But now that we're so much advanced, we've got all this other stuff. That's not wrong anymore. This is right. 
And they've turned this on its head. We'll notice what kind of lawlessness and his description of these is very pointed. This kind of lawlessness that is practiced. And I have to believe that when you walk through this list, you have to think to yourself, Paul wouldn't have mentioned it if if the Ephesian church didn't have some struggles there. So when you read these, let's try to understand them. It's for those who are lawless. Well, what is that? then what does that look like? Well, you see in, in the first part of this, he says, he gives these couplings of words. He says, it's for, it's for the lawless and disobedient. Well, the idea of lawlessness means I am outside the law or I am above the law. And then he couples it with this reality of the lawless and the rebellious. Because these are attitudes that are expressed of a person who is lawless and doesn't care about God. You know what it is? It's a person who says, I'm the law. I'm above the law. In fact, I make the law for my life. I don't need God telling me. I don't need God telling me I can't do this. Go here, drink this, be with this person, go over here, cuss, use God's name in vain. I'm the law. Who's to tell me that I can't do what I want to do when I want to do it? And that rebellious heart attitude is, is what the law intends to reveal, that you can't and I can't just behave that way and get away with it. There's a heaviness that will come on our lives, the lawless and the disobedient. Why is this so critical? I want us to just understand this, because in Paul's, uh, in Paul's description to Timothy about the law and saying You're not using the, they're not using the law in the right way, you, you'll kind of notice that he starts to go through a, a, a faint perspective of the Ten Commandments. When you become the lawgiver and you are now God, what have you just violated? Command number one, there shall be no other gods before me. And that's not just a pagan God, that's when you place yourself above God and his moral standards. And the moment you do that and your rebellious heart is revealed, you have, you have now rebelled against the very first commandment of the law and they're not even saying anything. The false teachers aren't even saying anything about that. They're saying, well, we're gonna use the law in a different way for myths and endless genealogies so that we get a meal ticket and we get paid and people can see us as this authoritative truth who know things that, that other people just don't know. And Paul says, you can't use the law that way. That's not lawful. He says, let's use it the way it was intended to be used, for law, to reveal lawlessness. If you're here this morning and you think to yourself, I'm above God's law, I just say to you, this is a very, very fearful position to be in. Where you could say, ultimately, I don't need God. There is no God. Because there will be a point where God calls everyone into judgment. And on that day, I would long for you to stand before him with the grace and righteousness of Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a lawless, rebellious individual. But he moves on and he says, but also for the ungodly and sinners. And he uses this word ungodly to express the irreverent worship that comes out of a person. And then he couples it with the ungodly and sinners. So notice what he's doing. He's saying it's for the lawless. The the lawlessness that is inside of you. The irreverent worship of God that makes its way 
outside of you in sinful practices because whatever's in the heart comes out of the mouth and into the conduct of an individual. And he's saying the the law is there for the ungodly, irreverent, worshiping people who then, as a result of their lack of worship of God, they begin to practice all kinds of despicable evil. And therefore breaking the second commandment. You just can't put any other God before him. You are not allowed to have any other graven image You are not allowed to say, you know what, I can worship any way I choose and any person I choose. Yes, we still struggle with idolatry in our our world, except the idols look different in our day and age. And he's saying the law is for the ungodly and for the sinners and for those who practice outwardly sin. It's for the unholy and profane. These words coupled together in the sense of the idea of unholy the, the real focus of the emphasis here is the behavior that is inappropriate in the presence of the divine. That you would be willing or I would be willing to do whatever I want to do as God, this holy moral character, sits beside and, and watches on and says, like, I can just do that and it's fine. No, God will hold me accountable for what I do, which means that ought to tell us something. No matter what we do, no matter what we watch, no matter how we surf the internet, no matter how this happens, it's done in the the holy, present gaze of God. Don't do and act inappropriately in the presence of the divine. Things that would be profane. Another way to describe this, some translation uh, will translate this. It's just totally worldly. It's ungodly and worldly. That's what the world does. The world goes over here. The world looks for pleasure in all kinds of different areas. Don't be that way. The law is supposed to condemn that. Those who not only are unholy and profane, which then, of course, would take the Lord's name in vain. I can do what I want in the gaze of a holy God, and he is not going to do anything. It bothers me every time when you hear somebody say and take Jesus Christ's name in vain. Doesn't it bother you? Like all of a sudden there's just like a cringe of some sort inside my soul. Like you don't know him. You don't know what you're saying. You don't know against who you're saying it. And you're just using it so flippantly as if this is no big deal. This is my creator. This is my king. Don't take his name in vain. Don't do unholy things. And then he moves on to say, those who strike their fathers and mothers, some translations say something like, those who murder their fathers and mothers. And the idea behind the wording is, you'd strike them even to the point of death. I think what he's talking about here is ways in which the Bible says, when when the fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother, and now they're not honoring their father and mother, and they're striking them, and they're abusing them in ways that they're not supposed to. So interesting in the Old Testament that the reality of a, of, a, of a son who would abuse their parents in that kind of way, the ultimate declaration was, you're gonna be put to death. That's how serious God was about what this revealed. 
those who are abusive in their mentality to their parents shows a discontent for the authority, not just God's, but the other authority that God has put into their life. And then it's also for those, he says, for those who strike, for those who are murderers, for those who just have no attention to the image bearing of God and can just wipe image bearers off at any time that they choose, that somehow, that what this is God is saying is, thou shalt not kill. They're using the law in ways that were not lawful. For the sexually immoral, he uses the word pornea to describe this sexually immoral activity that was going on in the life of the Ephesians and the life of the false teachers, that people were doing unholy kinds of things with their bodies in ways that would be, would be despicable in God's eyes that was totally worldly. Yes, we all know what happens at parties. We know what happens when people get drunk. We know what happens when people use and abuse other people's bodies. That word encapsulates the reality that the law says things against that, that we're not supposed to treat people that, those, in those kinds of ways, and, and we're not supposed to act and think in those kinds of ways because God wants us to find grace and fulfillment, not in those things, but in him. The law reveals that kind of sexual immorality. It's embodied in somewhat of the, of the, in the idea of the seventh commandment to not commit adultery. And then he adds this, this reality. It's not just the sexually immoral because the sexually immoral can be outside of marriage. That can be young people just doing whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. Watching things, doing things. But now he extends it because you can break the commandment not just by doing sexually immoral things, but now you can even break it. And he's saying to them, and he's very pointed, men who practice homosexuality. Now think about our culture for a moment. Our culture is saying that what God says is right is wrong. And you and I are now called to have to really embrace the reality. Are we going to say what God says about that subject? When God sovereignly designed people from the very beginning, he designed them male and female. I didn't write that. God did. And yet in our culture, that seems to be such a controversial subject that somehow the reality that we can't look in a mirror and be wise enough to figure out, hey, I know what I am because this is what I was born, is confusing. And it's getting shaped in different kinds of ways. And the truth is, is that the law is there to reveal the practice against these kind of behaviors. But these kind of behaviors has been around since sin entered into the world. These were going on a lot further before than if Ephesus. They were going on in Romans in the reality that he was saying that men who were depraved and given to their own passions would, would go against the natural order. And that is crucial in Romans, by the way. What makes this a problem is because what God has naturally designed in biology is supposed to be clearly understood by the creation so that we can say the creator did that. Let me just on the positive sense say this. If he's created you a man, 
He has called you to worship him and to honor him as a man, as a leader, as someone who would reflect the very glories of Christ who has been redeemed so that you will help lead in ways that would be helpful to the people that are around you. There's a reason why God created you that way. You didn't create you that way. He created you that way. And when he creates something, he creates it with a purpose. And all of you have a purpose from which God created you. If you're a lady and God has, has, has created you a woman, guess what? There is something so special about God's image and design within being a woman that there's something that's being lost and confused in the culture, that there is something about female, maleness and femaleness that reflects the very glory of God. And when we start confusing it, God doesn't take what he created and, and, the, and us confusing it lightly. Brothers and sisters, we're going to come across, that doesn't mean that we don't say this and our aim isn't love. It's, to, it's, it's for those who hear to say, but please trust how God has designed who you are and what he's meant for you to be. He says, because the law is against these kinds of practices, those who are here, those who are enslavers. You know, our culture is not just a having a confusion of gender. Our, law, our, our culture is in a crisis of human trafficking. These are people who, who use and abuse people, young people, children, adults, for the purpose of slavery in the culture. And it is insane the kind of numbers, a percentage that people are being drawn into the enslavement. The law reveals anyone who does such things is against God. He's against, the law reveals liars, those who bear false witness according to the ninth commandment and perjurers. And then he comes down to this conclusion that the law is good and it's for the lawless and these practices reveal that you need God. And now here's the litmus test. How do you know what's right and good from what's wrong and bad? He says, in case I've forgotten anything, in my list, he expresses it this way, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And test number one is this, is that if it goes against the sound teaching of, of, of the word of God, then there's something wrong with it. Let me ask you, do you know the word of God well enough to be able to know when someone else deviates from it? It's consistent with sound doctrine. The word sound is pure, healthy. Doctrine that is, brings a person to a right spiritual health who then shuns evil and embraces good. The litmus test is, is it consistent with sound doctrine? Which means it's not just the law anymore for us. We have to have the totality of inspiration, Genesis to Revelation, to be able to say, I love God and I'm gonna obey it. And, and then, as we walk through this, you notice, he says, if it's in accordance with the sound doctrine, and, and then here's test number two. Is it consistent with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God? Gospel is just the word for good news. And now, he expresses and reveals the content of the gospel. He's describing the content, and here's how he describes it. It's the gospel 
of the glory of God. Remember, the law, what does it reveal? An accurate perspective of God. So the gospel is an accurate reflection of God's saving mercy and grace. The content of the gospel brings God ultimate glory. It's an inher- is, is the idea of his inherent majesty. The gospel reveals all of the glory of that. And of the blessed God, the one who is held in the most highest esteem, the most highest honor that could ever be held, this gospel, this law belongs to him. And he ends this section in 1 Timothy 1, 11, and he has this short little statement, and he says this, with which I've been entrusted. As we close, let me just say a couple of things, and then we'll be done. Those who are elders here at the chapel, this speaks to us. People who have been entrusted, as Paul spoke to Timothy The pages of scripture speak to us, men. To lead in righteousness and the law that is good. To abide by what 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2 and 3 says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, And in verse four, he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Fellow elders, this is a call to us here at the chapel to remain faithful to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. That we will only lead as well as we lead people to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. It is not our wisdom, it is not our human ingenuity, it is God that we need. And we, as leaders, must exemplify that. Let me extend that to any leader who leads in any capacity in this church. We must stand together for the gospel of the glory of this blessed God. Christians, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are his ambassadors. Every believer in this room who believes in the gospel of the glory of the blessed God has a duty to this morally magnificent holy God to be an ambassador that represents him in a way that is glorifying to him. And let's remember that even when we see various lists of sins, that we are a group of people who are sinners as well. We're not just listing sins for the sake of listing sins, but Titus chapter three, and I'll close with this. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit 
whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being, just, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs to the hope of the eternal God. We have a privileged position as believers. Let's live like that. Let's use the law and use the Bible, but have an aim filled with love. That we say what needs to be said, but we do it in a way that is filled with the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. These truths are very pointed. And very often, as we look at the practices both of what is occurring in the culture in the New Testament, but in our own culture as well. Lord, we so badly desire to call what is right what you call right, to live within the boundaries that you've created so that you are glorified, the gospel isn't misrepresented, and that we retain being good ambassadors of the gospel. Lord, give us strength to be people whose aim is love, who can guide people to the truth and guide them to a Savior who's, who's willing to forgive sins. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in our lives. In your name we pray, amen.